Chapter Two, Part One of Our Village, Volume One by Mary Russell Mitford. Read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, 2020. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Village, Volume One Walks in the Country, Part One Frost and Thaw. January 23rd. At noon today, I and my white greyhound Mayflower set out for a walk into a very beautiful world a sort of silent fairyland, a creation of that matchless magician, the hoar-frost. There had been just snow enough to cover the earth and all its colours with one sheet of pure and uniform white, and just time enough since the snow had fallen to allow the hedges to be freed of their fleecy load and clothed with a delicate coating of rime. The atmosphere was deliciously calm, soft, even mild, in spite of the thermometer, no perceptible air, but a stillness that might almost be felt, the sky rather grey than blue, throwing out in bold relief the snow-covered roofs of our village, and the rimy trees that rise above them, and the sun shining dimly as through a veil, giving a pale fair light like the moon, only brighter. There was a silence, too, that might become the moon, as we stood at our little gate, looking up the quiet street. A Sabbath-like pause of work and play, rare on a workday. Nothing was audible but the pleasant hum of frost, that low, monotonous sound, which is perhaps the nearest approach that life and nature can make to absolute silence. The very wagons as they come down the hill along the beaten track of crisp yellowish frost dust glide along like shadows, even May's bounding footsteps, at her height of glee and of speed, fall like snow upon snow. But we shall have noise enough presently. May has stopped at Lizzie's door, and Lizzie, as she sat on the window-sill with her bright rosy face laughing through the casement, has seen her and disappeared. She's coming. Oh, no, the key is turning in the door, and sounds of evil omen issue through the keyhole. Sturdy, let me out, and I will goes, mixed with shrill cries on May and me from Lizzie, piercing through a low, continuous harangue, of which the prominent parts are apologies, chillblains, sliding and broken bones, lollipops, rods and gingerbread, from Lizzie's careful mother. Don't scratch the door, May. Oh, don't roar so, my Lizzie. We'll call for you as we come back. I'll go now. Let me out. I will go, are the last words of Miss Lizzie. A memo to self. Not to spoil that child if I can help it. But I do think her mother might have let the poor little soul walk with us today. Nothing worse for children than coddling, and nothing better for chillblains than exercise. Besides, I don't believe she has any. And as to breaking her bones in sliding, I don't suppose there's a slide on the common. These murmuring cogitations have brought us up the hill, and halfway across the light and airy common, with its bright expanse of snow and its cluster of cottages, whose turf fires send such wreaths of smoke sailing up the air, and diffuse such aromatic fragrance around. And now comes the delightful sound of childish voices, ringing with glee and merriment almost from beneath our feet. Ah, Lizzie, your mother was right. 
They are shouting from that deep, irregular pool, all glass now, where on two long, smooth, liney slides half a dozen ragged urchins are slipping along in tottering triumph. Half a dozen steps bring us to the bank right above them. May can hardly resist the temptation of joining her friends, for most of the varlets are of her acquaintance, especially the rogue who leads the slide. He with the brimless hat, whose bronzed complexion and white flaxen hair, reversing the usual lights and shadows of the human countenance, give so strange and foreign a look to his flat and comic features. This hobgoblin, Jack Rapley by name, is May's great crony, and she stands on the brink of the steep irregular descent, her black eyes fixed full upon him, as if she intended him the favour of jumping on his head. She does. She's down and upon him. But Jack Rapley is not easily to be knocked off his feet. He saw her coming, and in the moment of her leap sprung dexterously off the slide on the rough ice, steadying himself by the shoulder of the next in the file, which, unlucky follower, thus unexpectedly checked in his career, fell plump backwards, knocking down the rest of the line like a nest of card-houses. There's no harm done. But there they lie, roaring, kicking and sprawling, in every attitude of comic distress, while Jack Rapley and Mayflower, sole authors of this calamity, stand apart from the throng, fondling and coquetting and complimenting each other, and very visibly laughing, May in her black eyes, and Jack in his wide, close-shut mouth, and his whole monkey face, at their comrades' mischances. I think, Miss May, you may as well come up again and leave Master Rapley to fight your battles. He'll get out of the scrape. He's a rustic wit, a sort of Robin Goodfellow, the sauciest, idlest, cleverest, best-natured boy in the parish, always foremost in mischief, and always ready to do a good turn. The sages of our village predict sad things of Jack Rapley, so that I am sometimes a little ashamed to confess before wise people that I have a lurking predilection for him, in common with other naughty ones, and that I like to hear him talk to May almost as well as she does. Come, May! And up she springs, as light as a bird. The road is gay now, carts and post-chaise, and girls in red cloaks, and afar off, looking almost like a toy, the coach. It meets us fast and soon. How much happier the walkers look than the riders, especially the frost-bitten gentleman and the shivering lady with the invisible face, sole passengers of that commodious machine. Hooded, veiled and bonneted as she is, one sees from her attitude how miserable she would look uncovered. Another pond and another noise of children. More sliding? Oh, no, this is a sport of higher pretension. Our good neighbour, the lieutenant, skating, and his own pretty little boys and two or three other four-year-old elves, standing on the brink in an ecstasy of joy and wonder. Oh, what happy spectators, and what a happy performer! They admiring, and he admired, with an ardour and sincerity never excited by all the quadrilles and the spread eagles of the Seine and the Serpentine. He really skates well, though, and I am glad I came this way, for with all the father's feelings sitting gaily at his heart, 
it must still gratify the pride of skill to have one spectator at that solitary pond who has seen skating before. Now we've reached the trees, the beautiful trees, never so beautiful as today. Imagine the effect of a straight and regular double avenue of oaks, nearly a mile long, arching overhead and closing into perspective like the roof and columns of a cathedral, every tree and branch encrusted with the bright and delicate congelation of hoar-frost, white and pure as snow, delicate and defined as carved ivory. How beautiful it is, how uniform, how various, how filling and how satiating to the eye and to the mind, above all, how melancholy. There is a thrilling awfulness, an intense feeling of simple power in that naked and colourless beauty which falls on the earth like the thoughts of death, death pure and glorious and smiling, but still death. Sculpture has always had the same effect on my imagination, and painting never. Colour is life. We are now at the end of this magnificent avenue, and at the top of a steep eminence commanding a wide view over four counties, a landscape of snow. A deep lane leads abruptly down the hill, a mere narrow cart track sinking between high banks clothed with fern and firs and low broom, crowned with luxuriant hedgerows and famous for their summer smell of thyme. How lovely these banks are now, the tall weeds and the gorse fixed and stiffened in the hoar-frost, which fringes round the bright prickly holly, the pendant foliage of the bramble, and the deep orange leaves of the pollard oaks. Oh, this is rhyme in its loveliest form! And there is still a berry here and there on the holly, blushing in its natural coral through the delicate tracery still a stray hip or haw for the birds who abound here always. The poor birds! How tame they are! How sadly tame! There is the beautiful and rare crested wren, that shadow of a bird, as White of Selborne calls it, perched in the middle of the hedge, nestling as it were amongst the cold bare boughs, seeking poor pretty thing for the warmth it will not find. And there, farther on, just under the bank by the slender runlet, which still trickles between its transparent fantastic margin of thin ice as if it were a thing of life, there with a swift scudding motion flits in short low flights the gorgeous kingfisher, its magnificent plumage of scarlet and blue flashing in the sun like the glories of some tropical bird. He is come for water to this little spring by the hillside water which even his long bill and slender head can hardly reach, so nearly do the fantastic forms of those garland-like icy margins meet over the tiny stream beneath. It is rarely that one sees the shy beauty so close or so long, and it is pleasant to see him in the grace and beauty of his natural liberty, the only way to look at a bird. We used, before we lived in a street, to fix a little board outside the parlour window and cover it with breadcrumbs in the hard weather. It was quite delightful to see the pretty things come and feed, to conquer their shyness and do away their mistrust. First came the more social tribes, the robin redbreast and the wren, cautiously, suspiciously picking up a crumb on the wing, with a little keen bright eye fixed on the window. 
Then they would stop for two pecks, and then stay till they were satisfied. The shire birds, tamed by their example, came next, and at last one saucy fellow of a blackbird, a sad glutton, he would clear the board in two minutes. He used to tap his yellow bill against the window for more. How we loved the fearless confidence of that fine, frank-hearted creature, and surely he loved us. I wonder the practice is not more general. May! Oh, May, naughty May! She's frightened away the kingfisher, and now in her coaxing penitence she's covering me with snow. Come, pretty May, it's time to go home. The Thaw January 28th. We have had rain and snow and frost and rain again for four days of absolute confinement. Now it is a thaw and a flood, but our light gravelly soil and country boots and country hardihood will carry us through. What a dripping, comfortless day it is, just like the last days of November. No sun, no sky, grey or blue one low overhanging dark dismal cloud like london smoke mayflower is out coursing too and lizzie has gone to school never mind up the hill again walk we must oh what a watery world to look back upon thames kennet loddon all overflowed our famous town inland once turned into a sort of venice sea park covered into an island and the long range of meadows from town b to w one huge unnatural lake with trees growing out of it oh, what a watery world i'll look at it no longer i'll walk on the road is alive again noise is reborn wagons creak horses splash carts rattle and patterns paddle through the dirt with more than their usual clink the common has its old fine tints of green and brown, and its old variety of inhabitants, horses, cows, sheep, pigs and donkeys. The ponds are unfrozen, except where some melancholy piece of melting ice floats sullenly on the water, and cackling geese and gabbling ducks have replaced the lieutenant and Jack Rapley. The avenue is chill and dark, the hedges are dripping, the lanes knee-deep and all nature is in a state of dissolution and thaw. End of chapter 2, part 1